Well, good morning. It is so good to see you all here today. Uh, I don't know if you all have electricity, but we used to sing an old song around here called, well, I don't know what it was called. We have the power, but it goes like this. We have the power in the name of Jesus. So you may not have electricity, but rest assured you have the power in the name of Jesus. Amen? All right. We are continuing our uh, series on worship in spirit and in truth. And today we are going to begin uh, to look at the five, the five steps in worship. We've looked at this um, in our calendar, or our calendar, in our uh, bulletin, uh, where God calls us, God consecrates us, God uh, communes with us, and God, or God calls us. Uh, we have the call, the confession, God consecrates us, God communes with us, and God commissions us. And so the first of that five-step process in worship, if we want to call it that, is the call to worship. And that's what we're going to look at today. And we're going to, uh, in the f coming weeks, we're going to look at each one of these different steps in the Lord's service. And today our text is going to be from Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and then also Leviticus chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. So let's begin with Leviticus chapter 1. Verse 1 and 2, it says, Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd, and of the flock. Then from Leviticus chapter 9, verse 1, through verse 5, it came to pass on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, take for yourselves a young bull as a sin offering and a ram as a burnt offering without blemish and offer them before the Lord. And to the children of Israel you shall speak, saying, take a kid of the goats as a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both of the first year without blemish, as a burnt offering, also a bull and a ram as, a peace, off as peace offerings, to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. So they brought what Moses commanded before the tabernacle of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. So here in the biblical record in Leviticus chapter 1 and in Leviticus chapter 9, we see Israel called by God to worship. Now in Leviticus chapter 1, we see that in verse 1, that God called Moses from the tabernacle of meeting. So Leviticus 1.1 states that the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle. And what is clear in this verse is that Moses draws near. Remember when that word offering means to draw near. God said, bring your offering, have the people bring their offerings from the herd and from the flock. That word offering means to draw near. What's happening here is God is calling his people to draw near. And so as Moses draws near to the Lord, he draws near because God has called him. The Lord called or summoned Moses into his presence. This is what the call to worship is. Then in Leviticus 1, chapter 2, God is speaking to Moses, instructing him 
concerning the children of Israel, concerning the people, and how they are to draw near to the Lord, how they are to bring their offering, how they're to bring their worship to the Lord. Moses is receiving instruction here for worship. Then when we get to Leviticus chapter 9, verse 1, this is the beginning of the priestly worship in the tabernacle. So we see Moses then in Leviticus 9, verse 1, Moses issues the call to the people. So in Leviticus 1, God calls to Moses from the tabernacle. In Leviticus 9, as the worship is instituted and the priestly ministry begins in the tabernacle, Moses issues the call to worship just as God had instructed him in Leviticus chapters, chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. God was calling his people to worship. This was the beginning of the priestly ministry in the tabernacle. The people brought what Moses commanded before the tabernacle, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. So the call to worship is a corporate call. The scripture records that all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. This implies the Lord was present with them. When it says they stood before the Lord, this is implying that the Lord is present with them in a special way as the congregation, as all the congregation of Israel stood before him assembled together for corporate worship. The, instructed, uh, the instructions Moses had concerning the liturgy uh, was the worship in the tabernacle. And so that pattern of worship, that liturgy or that form of worship, if you will, that pattern was the template for worship for God's people. It was the form of worship the Lord prescribed for the tabernacle. We see it in the temple, and it informed the liturgy for worship in the church. Thus, the pattern for worship in the church was not established by men of certain denominations. <clears throat> now, I remember when I came to faith in Christ, I did not grow up in church. I went to church for weddings and funerals, and occasionally my brother would take me with them to uh, candlelight mass, maybe on Christmas Eve, or I would go occasionally with their family. They were uh, Catholic, <clears throat> but I did not go to church. I, didn't, I spent most of my weekends doing anything but being in church and worshiping God. <clears throat> I'm not saying that because I'm proud of that. I'm just saying that's just the way it was. And so for me, when I came to faith in Christ, I had no reference point about what it meant to worship God. I had my, of course, as everyone does, I had my own ideas of who God was, and I was very firm in my opinion about who I believed God was, and I was very firmly wrong, <laughs> uh, very firmly wrong about who God was. Um, but when I came to faith in Christ, I remember that the tradition that I entered into was one that rejected anything that spoke of tradition, literally. If it was traditional, they didn't do it. They considered it dead religion. And so I entered into, uh, even before I started attending church, the Christians that, the, the, the people that led me to faith in Christ and the people I was around before I ever joined a church and started worshiping in a church, uh, I just realized, or I was informed in the very beginning that we reject tradition because it's dead religion. And many of them had come from traditional churches and belief systems, and so it was dead to them. Of course, now, many years later, decades later, I'm looking at this and I'm realizing that they threw the baby out with the bathwater. It wasn't the tradition that was dead, it was their understanding. It was actually them who had died to the tradition because they let those things die instead of 
celebrating and gaining life from what all of those things were meant to be. And you realize as you read the Scripture and study the Scripture, Israel could have done the very same thing with worship in the tabernacle. And Oh, wait. Well, actually, they did. They did the very same things, which is why God judged them on a consistent basis. They let the traditions die. They let the life that the traditions spoke of, communicated, and imparted, they let that die because they allowed their faith in God to be diverted and they put their faith in other things. And so we see this pattern of worship established by God. It wasn't established by men of certain denominations. The pattern of worship was established by the Lord, and we see it clearly in the worship in the tabernacle, but the pattern goes much farther back than the tabernacle. It goes all the way back to creation. Now, we could go through all of the different covenants that the Bible uh, reveals to us the covenant at creation, the covenant with Adam, the covenant of marriage, the covenant with, with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with David. We could go through all of those and we can see this five-point process in, in all of those things. But we don't have time to do that. Uh, I don't know if Caleb has done it. I don't think I've asked him to, but I'm going to have Caleb put out on the weekly email uh, the name and the title of the book that really this series comes from. It's called The Lord's Service by Jeffrey Myers. And I would encourage all of you to read that book to gain a greater understanding of worship and what is actually transpiring during our worship. We're going to touch on those things, but we don't have the time to go into the great depth that Mr. Myers did in his book. So I'm going to encourage you to read the book. Uh, while I hit the highlights. So we see this pattern established at creation. And so I do want to look at the fivefold covenant pattern at creation in God's covenant with Adam. So for instance, God takes hold of his creation. He calls forth. How did God create? He spoke. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And we can follow the Genesis record of the, the days of creation, and God is speaking into existence. He's taking hold of his creation and calling it forth. And he, he takes hold of the dust that he has created in all things that he has created from nothing, because he spoke them into existence, and God creates the dust of the earth, then he separates the dust from the dust. And from the dust he forms a man and breathes into him his breath of life. So there is a separation, but there is also a union of separated dust with the breath of God, and that union of dust and breath forms a new creation, a living being, a man. So the old dust with new breath is given a new name. He's called Adam. And then we see, for good, God separates out of Adam and brings forth another creation, and it's called woman. God speaks. This is the third point of the five-point covenant process or covenant pattern. God speaks, and he gives instructions concerning the new life and the covenant relationship that man has now with God in his creation. And he gives a covenantal sign and seal. He speaks. Then he gives man something tangible. Man's in the creation, right? And the sign and the seal at creation, in this covenant with Adam, was the two trees. The two trees were the sign of the covenant. And he offers the man a meal. There's food everywhere. 
And he invites the man to eat, but he also warns the man, you are free to eat except you may not eat the fruit from this tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God provides an abundance for man and invites him to fellowship and to eat. So we see that God offers man a fellowship meal. This is our communion. This is why we have this table here. He offers man a fellowship meal and he lays out the blessing for grateful obedience and he also lays out the curse for ungrateful disobedience. And we find this pattern in every covenant in the Bible. And we also find that in every covenant of the Bible, it involves a meal. It involves food. This is the fourth point of the pattern. This is our communion with God, our fellowship with God, our peace with God, signified by God inviting us to share a meal with him. So that food becomes a vital sign and seal found in every covenant. This, this is found in our worship here at the communion table we come to each week. This is the food that God provides for us in communion with him each week. Then the fifth point is the perpetuation of the covenant. So God arranges for succession of the covenant. So at creation, it was the marriage of the man and the woman and the command to be fruitful and multiply, to perpetuate the human race through childbearing and to perpetuate the covenant with God from generation to generation. So Adam was to teach his children. His children were to teach their children. Their children were to teach their children world without end, from generation to generation to generation to generation until the Lord returns. So this fivefold pattern is consistent in all the covenants found in the Bible. And in worship, in the worship in the tabernacle, this fivefold pattern begins with the call to worship. So we have the call, confession, consecration, communion, and commission. The call from God is the call for man to assemble for the Lord's service. That's why we're here today. We have been called by God, not by me. You've been called by God to assemble here, to draw near to his presence for the Lord's service. We could say that it was the first call to worship, that the first call to worship was God calling forth his creation. God in his grace has brought his creation near to him. This includes the creation of all things in heaven and on earth. But it most especially includes the creation of man. Man alone, out of all of God's creation, is said to be created in the image of God. Man, in particular, is created to worship God. Man, in particular, is called by God to worship Him. God calls you to worship him. God commands you, in fact, to worship him. So God has chosen to draw near to man and bring man near to him. This is the effectual call to worship from God to man. God calls, man responds. This is why we begin each week. We begin our worship service, as we call it. We begin it with a call to worship. And it is God himself who calls us to worship him. So when we talk about the call to worship, our context is the Lord's Day worship. We are talking about our congregational worship on Sunday the Lord's Day. So we're not saying that this is the only day you can worship. You worship God any time, any place. But what I am saying is your worship of God any time, any place is not the same as your worship of God called together, assembled together 
on the Lord's day for the Lord's day service. There is a reason God tells us to assemble and to worship. It's not that we can't worship God in other times, other places, and in other ways. It's that God has called us corporately together for a specific purpose in what we call the Lord's Day worship. So when we assemble together for worship on the Lord's Day, we do not need to ask God to be present in our worship. We're not praying and asking God to show up. We don't need to assure the Lord that he is welcome in our worship service. We do not need to do that. In fact, I will say it's wrong to do that. Because God is not waiting for us to welcome him into our time of worship. There is no need to pray that God be present in our worship, for it is God who commands our worship, and he is the one inviting us into his presence. It'd be like you going into someone's house as their guest, and you say, wait, I'd just like to pray. Father, I just want to welcome the owner of this house. I just want them to be welcome in their house. Why would you pray that? It's their house. They've invited you to come into their presence. God calls us to himself. God calls us and awaits our response. He is the one inviting us into his presence. It is God who is commanding us from heaven to enter into his presence. And we respond in obedience as the Spirit enables us. We don't just trip in here because we decided it was the better thing to do today because I don't have any power at home. No, we come here because God invited us, and if you're here, you're here by his grace. You're here because he has enabled you to be here. We are not asking him to enter into our presence. He is commanding us to enter into his. The Lord's day worship, the Lord's service, is our obedient response to his graceful command to enter into his presence. The call to worship is not a suggestion. It is a command in response to God calling his people into his presence for the purpose of performing the Lord's day service. You can't perform the Lord's day service on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Saturday. You can only perform it on the Lord's day. Now, I know every day is the day that the Lord has made, but there is a reason why this is called the Lord's day. We know it is called the Lord's Day because that's what the disciples called it. It's what the early church called it because it was the eighth day or the first day of the week, if you will. The first day of the week is Sunday. If you're counting and the first day is Sunday and you count to Saturday, Saturday's day seven, the next day is Sunday or day eight if you're just counting chronologically. So the Lord's day was the day that the Lord was raised up, resurrected from the dead. And it was the day that the church came to worship on because it was the day that signified the new creation that God had brought to bear, brought into being through the resurrection of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord's Day service is God commanding our worship. And it is no less than his grace that enables us to enter into that worship, to enter into his presence. If we consider again how the Lord called Moses from the tabernacle, Leviticus chapter 1 verse 1. And God called to Moses from the tabernacle. Remember when we read last week in Exodus when they... When Moses erected the tabernacle and finished everything, all the furnishings, everything, and it was all set up, 
Then the glory cloud filled the tabernacle. And at the end of Exodus, it says that God, that Moses could not enter into the tabernacle because of the glory of God, the cloud of God's glory. Moses was unable to enter into the tabernacle. Then in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1, we see where God calls Moses near. When did Moses go? When God called him. This is what our call to worship is. So we consider how the Lord called Moses from the tabernacle. And he commanded Moses to call and instruct Aaron, the priest, and the people concerning the service of the tabernacle or concerning their worship. When Moses called Aaron and the people, it was God commanding his people to enter his presence through the mouth of Moses. So this is just as Moses went to Egypt as the instrument of the Lord used by God to command Pharaoh in Egypt. Moses is the instrument the Lord is using in the wilderness to command his people. God called the people to worship through the mouth of Moses, recorded there in Leviticus chapter 9, verse 1. And on the Lord's day worship, the pastor or the elder calls the people to worship. But it is in fact the Lord commanding his people to enter into his presence. That pastor, that elder is just the mouthpiece God is using to issue his command to worship, to come into his presence. God is not meeting us. We are meeting him. God is not entering into our presence. We are entering into his presence. We are not commanding or calling God He is the one commanding and calling us. We are called to enter into God's special presence on the the Lord's day. Well, what do I mean by that phrase, special presence? Many argue today that everything we do is worship, or everything we do should be worship. Our life is worship before the Lord, and in a sense, that is true. This is said as if it does not matter, though. People very often say this as if it doesn't matter when or where or how we meet for worship, or if we meet at all to worship. Some people feel no compulsion to assemble together, gather together, to worship together because all life is worship, which means what? Well, it means that when we, when we challenge this command in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, and even more so as we see the day approaching. Well, that's the command given to us in Hebrews chapter 10. So when challenged on not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, we often hear a quick retort that God is everywhere. And what that is implying, what I did many Sundays growing up, I was fishing somewhere. If it wasn't the right time of year to fish in the bay, then I was at a river or a lake. But if it was the right time of year, or even if it wasn't, I was probably in the bay fishing somewhere. And I loved it. And I believed in God, though I had no concept of who God was, except the one, the God I had created in my own mind that was created in my image, who was not the God of the Bible. So when I'm fishing, or when I'm golfing, or when I'm just relaxing on Sunday, God is there because God is everywhere. And what we do is that we, we, we reduce worship to simply a state of mind. And that's not what worship is. We must never confuse the omnipresence of God with his promise to be present with his people. You know what omnipresence is? God is everywhere all at the same time. So God's here. But God's also in Ethiopia with my friends who are probably sleeping right now, actually. But he's there. He's everywhere. He's God. He's the omnipresent God. But we don't confuse the omnipresence of God with the promise to be present with his people. 
It is true that God is both in heaven and in hell, Psalm 139.8. The psalmist writes, if I go to the highest heavens, you are there. If I go to the lowest parts of hell, you are there. In other words, if you read Psalm 139, you see that the psalmist is saying, there's nowhere I can go apart from your presence because you are everywhere. But I think we would all agree that God's presence in heaven and in hell, though he is present in both places, he is not present in both places in the same way. Would you agree with that? You you should, because that is the truth. He's not present the same way in hell as he is in heaven. And I believe one of the reasons for that is because God's people aren't in hell, they're in heaven. God promises to be present with his people in a special way. God was present in all of his creation, all over the world, while the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness of Sinai. But he was not present in the same way. So as we're going through our our timeline on Wednesday, I I notice on our timeline that about where we're at right now, the the Zhou dynasty has already started in China. While all these things are going on in Israel, and God is present with his people in Israel, does that mean God's not in China? Orchestrating the rise and fall of dynasties? that has given to us the nation of China that we know today? Yes, he was present there in China while his children were wandering the Sinai Peninsula. But he wasn't present in China the same way he was present with his children. God's presence went with Moses and the children of Israel in a special way. And Moses counted on it, Exodus 33, 14 through 15. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. God says this to Moses. And then Moses said to God, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. If you're not going to be present with us, God, then, then, then we don't want to go. He was present with the children of Israel in the fire And in the cloud, as he led them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, but also in the fire and the cloud of the tabernacle, in a way he was not present in any other place on earth, though he is the omnipresent God. God's presence went with Moses and the children of Israel in a special way, and Moses counted on that. They ate before the Lord as they worshiped in his presence. We do this each week as we come to the table. Deuteronomy 12, 7. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in all to which you have put your hand, you and your household, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. We cannot use the omnipresence of God as justification to disobey his command to assemble together and to enter into his presence, especially on the Lord's day. God has promised to be with his people in a special way when they gather together for worship. I believe this is particularly true for worship on the Lord's day. God has promised to be present in our worship. If God is not present, then there is no point to our worship. If God is not here, if God is not present, if we are not in his presence as we worship, what is the point of our worship? And I would say there is no point to our worship. In Matthew 18, 20, Jesus promised to be present where two or three are gathered in his name. You might wonder, why two or three? Well, I believe that declaration by Jesus was breaking the Jewish tradition that said you had to have ten men in order to form a synagogue, in order to have an organized worship service. Jesus was breaking that tradition, and he told his disciples, 
that he is in their midst where two or three are gathered together in his name. This is a picture of worship. John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day when the Lord appeared to him and gave to him the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why was John in the Spirit on the Lord's day? He's, on the, he's a prisoner on the Isle of Patmos. He's exiled there. John didn't have a congregation with him to worship. So what was John doing? He was worshiping on the Lord's day because that's what the church did. And as we are assembled in this place, even today, by the Lord's gracious command and invitation, we have been brought near into the Lord's special presence. He has called us and commanded us to enter into his presence for the Lord's day service, what we're conducting even right now. You have responded to his gracious call to worship. You have entered into his special presence on this Lord's day. So our response, God calls, we response. There is a response to God's call. So when God calls us into his presence, when we respond to his call, he takes hold of us by his word and separates us from the world as his own people. This is why we outline the call, confession, consecration, communion, commission. When God calls us, he is separating us from the world as his own people. This is the work of God in our worship. He is separating us from the world. He is working in us by the Spirit, sanctifying us and renewing us through his word. We stand in his presence, ready to respond to his call, and we receive his gracious gifts. So we stand ready in response, and we are ready to receive his gracious gifts that he gives to us in this Lord's Day service. We issue the call to worship in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we respond with a hearty amen. There is a call, there is a response. The call to worship is a call to worship the triune God of creation, who is one God in three persons, revealed to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not three gods, one God. Our response affirms this is the God we worship. So when, when I give the call to worship and I say in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and you say amen, you are affirming that this is the God we worship. The triune God of creation. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our response affirms that this is who we worship. This Trinitarian confession identifies us as distinctly Christian in our worship. This is why we say that those traditions who do not acknowledge the Trinity are not truly Christian. This is why people say that Muslims call us people of the book because we, we have the Bible, and they also have the Bible. They also believe in the Bible, but they have the Quran, which is a further revelation of Jesus Christ. And we say, nope, because you do not worship the same God of the Bible, because the God of the Bible is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's his name. You are not worshiping the same God. You are in name. You may think you are, but you are not. You cannot because you vehemently oppose the doctrine of the Trinity, as well as the, the deity of Jesus Christ himself. Same with Mormons. They can use all the same words, but they pour vastly different meanings into the same terms. They do not worship the same God because they do not believe in the triune God. They believe God the Father was a man like us who grew up on an earth like this and ascended to Godhood. And Jesus the same, and the Holy Spirit is some impersonal force at work. No, that is not what the Scripture teaches. And so when we... When we confess this triune God, we are confessing that our worship is distinctly Christian. We are worshiping the God of the Bible. The God we worship is the God of Holy Scripture revealed in the 66 books of the Bible. His triune nature is revealed throughout the pages of Scripture, and so he is worshiped as such by his children. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the name of the triune God. He is the eternal Father, not named after earthly fathers. That's not why he's called the Father. But the true eternal Father from which all concept of Father originates. He is Father because that's his eternal nature. And any concept of Father we have originates with him. We didn't, we didn't impose that name upon him. Just like the Son. He is the eternal Son, not because he was born but because that is his eternal relation to the Father. Same with the Spirit. He is the eternal Spirit who completes the love-giving triune nature of the Godhead. And so when we think about this triune God, it is by the Spirit the Son dwells in us. It is by the Spirit we come to the Father through the Son. It is by the Spirit we pray to the Father in the name of the Son, and it is by the Spirit we are empowered to do the will of the Father in our life in the Son. In the Son who is our life. Your life is not just in the Son. The Son is your life. So God initiates the call to serve us. Now, we don't often think about this, and I'll be honest with you, until I began this study in depth of our worship, I didn't think about God serving us. I thought about us serving God. And I've preached from this pulpit before that you shouldn't come here expecting to get. You should come here ready to give. And God has corrected me. Because that is incorrect. We are absolutely here to receive. And we should know that, and we should be ready to receive all that God has for us. So God initiates the call in order to serve us first. God initiates the call, and by His grace, we respond to it. And the call to worship is the first step in the beginning of the Lord's Day service, the beginning of worship. There should be nothing that interrupts the flow of worship after the call is issued. This is why we do our announcements before the call. Last week, we talked about the sacrifice of worship. The whole context of worship, as we see in the tabernacle, involves sacrifice. We no longer bring animals. Remember, we bring ourselves now as living sacrifices. We are the living sacrifices offered up to God in the Lord's service. The call to worship is the beginning of that sacrificial service. And our response to His call is our response to God's call to draw near and offer up ourselves to Him. Now, that language, that visual, may cause us to think that offering ourselves to God as living sacrifices is our service to Him. And, and it is, in a sense. But it is first His service to us, the Lord's service is first and foremost His service to us. Think about this. We cannot even come to Him in worship apart from Him initiating the call and giving us the grace to respond. You are here in worship for the Lord to serve you first. Only after He serves us do we respond to serve Him. Well, what does this look like? Well, first, He serves us by giving us His gracious gifts. The greatest being Christ, who is our very life. Each week we come here and assemble in worship, we are affirming, reaffirming, renewing this reality that God has given to us, His Son, His very life. Can you think of a greater gift that God could give us? He gives us the gracious gifts of life, of forgiveness, of knowledge, of glory, and there are many others that we can list. Second, then, after we receive from Him, and He is doing His work in us through those gifts that He has graciously given, 
then is our response of grateful praise and thanksgiving. We offer up the sacrifice of praise, which is the fruit of our lips, continually giving thanks to his name. Why do we give thanks? Because he has given us reason. We don't say thank you until we have a reason to say thank you. God serves us first, and we say in response, thank you. And we offer up in response our thanksgiving, our praise, our worship, our adoration, our love for God because he has given graciously to us. So the point of the Lord's Day service is primarily about what we are receiving from the Lord as he serves us. What he gives to us in worship is primary. What we give to him is actually secondary. In the call to worship, the Lord's The the Lord first services us, then we respond with our service to him. This is why assembling for worship is important. We don't really realize what we are missing when we are not in the Lord's presence on the Lord's day, allowing the Lord to graciously serve us. It's not only a point of obedience, but you are called into his presence to be separated from this world and renewed. The Lord is doing this work in you during the entire liturgy. He is first of all serving you in this way. He's working in you as he is calling you out from the world of death into his life. He is taking you and separating you and making you new. He is speaking to you and sanctifying you by his word and his spirit, equipping you for the good works which he has prepared for you. He is inviting you to commune with him in peace as he feeds you at his thanksgiving table. Finally, he commissions you to go and to make disciples to continue perpetuating his covenant from generation to generation to generation. And this all begins with a call to worship with God's call and command to enter into his presence. He calls you each week. He commands you to worship him, to enter into his special presence in the Lord's day service. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. And now... We come to the point in time in our Lord's Day service where God invites us to commune with Him, to come to His table, to fellowship in peace with Him because His Son has given up His body and poured out His blood that you can have the assurance of pardon upon the confession of your sin. It's why the first thing we do after the call is confess our sins to the Lord and receive from Him the assurance of pardon. Because once we have confessed our sin and we receive that assurance of pardon, and that assurance of pardon has nothing to do with whether you feel pardoned or not. It has everything to do with, God, with what God has declared in His Word, what God has provided for you in His Word, in His Son, in reality, in Jesus Christ. And he applies it to you and makes it real to you and effectual to you by the Spirit that dwells within you. So that when you confess your sin, you are brought to the very presence, the very throne of grace, and you receive from God the assurance of pardon. And so now, after God has consecrated us, we can come to this table of communion, of fellowship with God, and there is nothing between us. There is just peace. And He is the one that has provided that peace. And we eat this meal and we renew that covenant each week, declaring the body and the blood of Jesus, not just reminding us, but reminding God of His covenant that He made with us through His Son and the blood of His Son. It is a most amazing thing. Praise God. So Christian, I invite you, even as the Lord invites you, to come to his table and sup with him. Welcome to Jesus.
let us stand for your commission, your charge. When you respond to God's call to worship, respond in humility, but respond with purpose, knowing that it is first God who called you, and it is God who is first serving you. You are not called to worship because God needs something from you, for God needs nothing from us. But on the other hand, we need everything from him. The preparation for worship begins before you ever enter these doors into this sanctuary, or it should. You are coming knowing that you are called and commanded to enter into the presence of Almighty God. We must not enter the presence of the Lord flippantly or haphazardly. There is no greater presence we can be called into. We could all be imagine, we could all imagine being called into the presence of some great dignitary or some important person or someone that we thought we would never be able to entertain their presence. And we would prepare ourselves with great purpose to meet and to encounter and to come into that person's presence. There is no greater presence we come into than the presence of our Lord. And he calls us into his presence each week. Do you believe that? Then we must enter into, into his presence accordingly because of the one who calls and the one who commands us to come. And so I want to encourage you, church, when he calls, respond. Know that he will call week in and week out and prepare yourself to respond to his call, to worship him in spirit and in truth, knowing that he is first working in you for his glory. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. And be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The Lord be with you.